namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambodhasa namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambodhasa namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambodhasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed noble and fully self-enlightened one. So, um, in our talk, or uh, talk a little bit about karma, which is a you know one of the central uh, doctrines of of the Buddha, at least his. Uh, particular interpretation of it because in those times there were various interpretations of karma uh, but I thought since it was Christmas and this is a sort of a Christian feast uh, just to tie it in with the, the work of Jesus Christ because <clears throat> uh, here we have a, a man who in three years uh, had an enormous effect on, on the world uh, eventually and uh, he said something which resonates very well with would have resonated very well with the Buddha I think as you sow so you shall reap he was very clear on that uh, when I was in Sri Lanka once uh, I asked uh, the person who used to tend to our monastery I, we were talking about this and that and I said to him why do you think uh, you know, Jesus Christ was crucified died such a death he said well he must have he must have done something terrible in his past life. <laughs> Which I thought was, <laughs> was a very sort of Buddhist way of looking at things, you know. <laughs> and um, of course what he, what he didn't understand, or what this person didn't seem to uh, grasp, was that sometimes uh, you do something out of compassion where you get a backlash. In fact, uh, you know, even if you're the most peaceful, loving person on this earth, somebody will hate you for it. <laughs> all these people like, you know, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, they all get shot in the end. So the manner of our of our death is not necessarily a direct uh, karmic consequence of our actions. And really, uh, that's the distinction I think we have to be very clear about. Um, when the Buddha is talking about karma, he's talking, uh, you know, specifically about that which is to do with our liberation. And um, he has this very simple law which, which underpins the whole of the law of karma. It's called this, that, the this, that law, idhapachyatar <laughs> in, in the Pali. And it goes something like this. Uh, because that happened in the past, this happens now. And because that didn't happen, this doesn't happen. Or this does happen. You know, it depends how you want to interpret it. So that's basically the way most people uh, would think of karma in the sense of cause and effect. Something you did in the past and you get clobbered by it somewhere in the future. <laughs> and um, obviously there is such a thing. But uh, if, you, if you think about that, then you, you tend to get into fate. And the problem with fate, of course, is that uh, you lose your free will. I mean, you know, why make decisions? Because it's going to happen anyway. And um, there was a, a sect in the Buddha's time 
who actually believed that it didn't really matter what you did uh, because your karma was set. So uh, the teacher said, if you went down one side of the Ganges, um, you know, performing great acts of compassion and love and, and all that, and came up the other side, uh, murdering, thieving, <laughs> doing all terrible things, would make a blind bit of difference because your karma is set. So we have to be very careful about thinking about our karma as something which is um, only a product of past action. But of course there are products of past actions, not to deny that, it's just that's not the, over, uh, the overarching effect upon our present life. The second part, uh, oh by the way, if you, if you did only believe in that, it's difficult to see where creativity would come in. You know, it'd be repetitive, wouldn't it? Mm. Now the other side of, the, of that equation is if this happens now, this happens now and if this doesn't happen now, this doesn't happen now or something else happens. So here we have a very uh, direct uh, uh, creative moment right here, right now. So one example of that would be us, you see. All of us have come here through different karmic past lines but we've all arrived here to create this particular situation. This situation would not be the same if one of you hadn't arrived. So for instance, Gene, Gene Stewart, who was supposed to be here, has got caught up in the snow and he's not here. So therefore, this situation is different because of that. She didn't come, you see. If she suddenly arrived, then we'd have a different situation. <laughs> so if you can, if you can grasp the, uh, that situation where you've got one line of action which is coming from the past into the present and things happening in the present because things are meeting in the present moment. If, if, things, if, it, if this universe were only about things happening in this present moment without any connection to the past, then one could only presume it would be, be rather chaotic. Can't see where order would come. So the past gives us the order you see, the past gives us some sort of order, but the present gives us the sense of chaos. So when you put the two together, what you get is a very creative situation because you've got that fundamental line and something happens to it because things meet, things meet within the universe. So <clears throat> keeping that in mind, uh, just consider when you do something, you see. Um, in science they have this theory of chaos, don't they? Uh, where, <clears throat> you know, something happens and with supporting conditions, that's important, the supporting conditions, a little butterfly wing or something turns into a storm uh, further up the line. And in fact, I suppose that's happening all the time. You know, how does turbulence happen, you know? If you only look at, at the world of politics, you see, suddenly, suddenly you've, got, you've got mayhem out of nowhere. It just arises very quickly out of supporting conditions. But it also disappears just as quickly too when the supporting conditions also disappear. And I'm always amused how we always have to, at least Westerners anyway, have to think of the most dire consequences. <laughs> Why we can't put a positive spin on it, such as, you know, a little act of kindness, you know, done at uh, yeah, Satipanya in white grid <laughs> with supporting conditions changes the whole world and everybody becomes enlightened in no length of time but 
<laughs> not that it will happen, but even so, it's a nice way to, to put a positive spin on, on, on the theory of chaos. And in a sense, that's very close to uh, the Buddha's teaching. I, I mean, I can't see much of a difference to that. Um, <clears throat> now, when we do an act, you see, it goes out into society. No matter what you do, it goes into a set of conditions, which are also moving. They're also dynamic. It's not as though you're going into, you know, you're putting something into a still place and moving it. Everything's in this state of dynamism. And you throw something into the pot and who knows what will come out? So who knows what will come out? And it may not be very, uh, it may be wonderful, you know, like um, say all these people who buy tickets on the lottery. They're all spending all this money on the lottery. Somebody wins. Somebody hits the jackpot and comes away with millions of pounds. Now how, uh, why should that happen to that person, nobody else, you see? So you might say, oh, it's good karma. In the past life he gave lots of money away. <laughs> I think, I think we can also now see that it's not, it doesn't quite work like that. You, you know, it's, it's more in the sense of uh, you put something into, into a situation and you may or may not receive something wonderful and may or may not receive something terrible. You just don't know. Uh, things happen to us which are completely uh, outside our uh, control. Um, there was a, a lovely uh, man... It's funny, I should forget his name. Um, he was the in charge of the building, <coughs> Dad Gaia House. <coughs> and while I was there, he developed asbestosis, you know, cancer through asbestos in the lungs. And um, a, remarkable, a remarkable way that he um, worked with that disease. It was, it was truly spiritual, actually. It was very, very moving. I mean, he wasn't into meditation or anything, but... He seemed to be at ease with the whole situation and um, died peacefully. Now this uh, this fellow was only in his fifties, you know, I think, if I remember rightly. And when he was a young a young uh, worker, young well, a boy, eighteen, nineteen, doing apprenticeship with Costains, the builders, they were throwing snowballs of blue asbestos at each other. <laughs> you know, which is the worst of all asbestos, I believe, and. Uh, you know, years later, he dies of this uh, painful disease. So now, uh, what we begin to understand is that, you know, things happen to us, which have nothing to do with us. It's just other people's ignorance, other people's carelessness, other people's sometimes genuine mistake, you know, just not understanding. Uh, things happen to us quite uh, out of the blue. Um, and so, when we look at the universe like that, it gets a bit scary. Because <laughs> anything can happen, my goodness. And that's, of course, why we, when, we, when we touch upon that, there's this rush to make everything very secure, you know, make sure you've got your insurance policies and all that. So, uh, at, the world is not something we can control, and it's not something that we particularly make. Right? You put your pennyworth into the pot, and you don't know what you're going to get out. Generally speaking, society tries to make it so that if you put something good in, you get something good out. You know, you put, a, put your work in and you get a pension and, and you can live happily in old age unless, uh, you know, unless you drop dead <laughs> too early to enjoy your, your, the fruits of your life. So, um, 
it's uh, understanding that there are, there are other laws apart from karma. There are obviously the physical laws. You know, I mean, look at all these people that were killed by the tsunami a few years ago. Now that struck the east coast of Sri Lanka. Yeah, the east coast, I think, yes, and the south, wasn't it? And um, just wiped out a load of people. See? And um, I'm sure they, you see, because in the folklore of uh, Buddhism, um, you will you will get you know people drowned because in the past life they they must have done something terrible. Uh, to support that, unfortunately, there are passages, especially in the commentaries, which support that almost in a sort of uh, di- you know very direct way. There's a lovely story which goes with one of the Dhammapada verses where a ship was crossing the ocean and um, it suddenly stopped, even though the wind was up and they didn't know what was happening, and, and so the captain um, wondered you know, what to do and luckily of course there was a group of monks on board <laughs> Theravada monks of course and uh, he asked them he asked them to think about it and consult it so they went into deep meditation and when they came out they said who's your wife? So in the past life she drowned all the dogs you see so the ship won't move until you throw her overboard so <laughs> so of course, of course the, the, uh, the captain who no doubt was very sad um, it might have been a ploy, of course, to get rid of his wife, but we'll put that one aside. And he, <laughs> he uh, chucked it overboard, and lo and behold, the ship sailed on, just sailed on. So when you get these little stories from scriptures which support a sort of very mechanical type of karma, you can see that um, it, it, it becomes impossible to, to, to sustain. So there are all the, all, this, all the physical laws of the universe. And you could say in a very broad sense that you've been born here. You've been born here in this situation. So whatever happens to you in this situation is part of your karma. But it's not personal. It's not direct. You didn't cause a tsunami, for instance. Then, of course, we come to this rather interesting place, is biology. Um, you know, these days reductionists take it right down to your genes. Everything, everything that you are now is caused by <laughs> Caused by your genes, for heaven's sake. So, in which case, of course, what you know, um, what, what, uh, where does free will come into that? It's all in my genes, you know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm an idiot because it's in my genes. <laughs> I'm a totally foul person because it's in my genes, you know. I just happen to become a, a complete um, wonderful saint because it was in my genes. So, when when you start, you know, investigating that, it's, it's just a bit off. Not that I'm sure reductionists take away the, the effects of society on the genes, but um, obviously what comes to us from our genes, we know, is from past generations. So uh, what we have is, you know, the body we have is, uh, is the body we're given. You're stuck with it, that's it, you know. You, <laughs> you might have preferred uh, to look like a film star, but unfortunately you've ended up with this one. So... Um, the actual gene pool that we're that we're abstracted from, and which creates this body, doesn't in Buddhism it doesn't create the mind. The mind is 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 of another order, but the body is is definitely given. And um, uh, if we're born with uh, physical problems from our from our uh, forefathers, um, for mothers as well, we get that. Uh, it's like. It's not. It's, it's something we have to handle, but to talk about it as my personal karma would seem to stretch it a little bit. Now, I do have my own peculiar little theory about this, so <laughs> I can labour you with it. 
the the body comes with its with its history with its genetic history and the mind which enters into it uh, also comes with its history with its psycho psychological history and when the two meet um, somehow the strains within the mind uh, the turbulences within the mind uh, must locate themselves and I often wonder whether the mind searches for a weak part of the body where it locates itself and if the genetic if there's a genetic weakness in there as well then uh, the effect could be even even worse than, than the mind can do to the body so how do we know the mind affects the body how do we know the mind does damage to the body well here in your meditation you know I mean if when every time some anger comes up in your meditation you can feel you can feel the, the conflagration in the body the heat that it's causing and this 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 these mental effects on the body is a, you know is having a direct effect on the cells hmm? and uh, it's interesting that you know something I, I read a figure I don't know how scientific it is but 80% of cancers happen after a trauma of, of sorts so there's some link there between that disease or some similar diseases and and mental states that we get into so <clears throat> uh, whether uh, if, if you're born with a very good constitutionally strong body uh, but you have a terrible mind <laughs> then it may be that you live long and, and happy but if you have a, a constitutionally weak body and, a, and an awful mind then you might find that your life is shortened for it because the, just the physical frame can't handle the turbulence um, but that of course gives us our um, our third law which is the law of the mind um, just just to go back to the body remember that awful incident with Hoddle <laughs> uh, what was his name uh, somebody Hoddle what was his first name Hoddle. Eh? Glenn Hoddle, Glenn Hoddle. Yes. and you know when effective by Hinduism and he, he made this real I think it was the reporter really who said that you know people born with genetic um, um, diseases and stuff uh, was their personal karma and it just wasn't politically correct <laughs> it would have been in India it would have been have been hailed in India but in the West it's just not politically correct and um, I, I don't I, I, I don't think it is it is correct myself I don't I don't think so anyway uh, <clears throat> because we now have this the law of the mind and then we have the law of karma and then the final law are the spiritual laws so chitta the mind um, which in Buddhism is, is difficult in English in, in Buddhism refers to the whole heart-mind complex it's your emotional thought life um, you'll see it translated often as heart-mind which is a bit a bit um, awkward in English I mean the old word was soul in English I mean it was body soul and spirit you see so your <coughs> the soul was pointing to your to your um, uh, psychological life your emotional thought life and then I think it became confused with spirit as being everlasting or something, I don't know. But um, I think we can thank Descartes for the split between the body and the heart. So we've ended up with, with a language that we don't have a word which combines for us these two things anymore. But in the East, I think you'll, you may find people saying that when they, when they say, I think, they actually point to the heart. They don't point to the head. So there's still that 
understanding that you know our our um, thoughts and our understanding arise out of attitudes attitudes which are really based in the heart <coughs> an emotional feel about things you know so that uh, uh, the law of the, the, the psychological law the Buddha of course that in Buddhism is talked about is the dependent origination so the Buddha doesn't have a total complete uh, description of human psychology I mean there's no developmental psychology there's no uh, there's no psychology in Buddhism that I know of as, as to how a child develops for instance you know and there, there doesn't seem to be that much understanding of very severe psychological states you know like schizophrenia and stuff like that and because that's not where the Buddha's not where the Buddha places himself right he's he's very firmly placed in this whole area of how we create suffering and dependence origination is is really about that in the Abhidhamma, of course, it tries to finesse on that, trying to talk about mind moments, 17 mind moments in every material moment. It tries to uh, describe how, uh, how moments of cognition build up to a conscious moment and all that. Uh, but even so, it's still about how do we create suffering, you see. So that psychology, the, the dependent origination, is is uh, the Buddha's own explanation and uh, it would seem that there was nothing like it before him there's no there's no intimation of that sort of psychology before the Buddha and um, in his awakening um, there were three things that he saw the first thing was that uh, the the thing about karma was that throughout his past lives he saw how his ethical decisions, his moral decisions, both the beautiful and the negative, had affected his rebirth, had affected moment to moment his life. And then he saw how beings moved from one place to another dependent on such actions, so that what was a personal law for him then became a cosmic law. But the inner insight the actual insight that came to him as he sat there was he realized that he had destroyed all the defilements within him. Something had completely disappeared out of his psychology. And uh, now, you know, he talked about that later as, as delusion, greed, hatred, the three roots, the three unwholesome roots. Um, but that was in his victory verse, which we chant in the morning. I have attained the unconditioned chitta. I've contained, I've contained a consciousness which is no longer part of this world of conditioning which is the world of karma hmm. so <clears throat> that psychological law uh, is embedded it, it really expresses itself mainly through dependence origination and it's up to us to of course investigate that when it comes to karma um, this is the this is the um, the teaching around cause and effect, which we've talked about before in sort of great, in sort of large terms about that having been, this becomes, and so on. But within us, uh, we're talking really about the role of, of, of will. This is absolutely core to the Buddha's teaching. He, um, he says it quite distinctly. He says, Chaitanya Kamma Wandami Bikoi. It is the will that I call karma, uh, 
or bhikkhus. And when he talks about kama, he's talking about an act. Right? He's not talking about karma uh, as we would use it today, meaning you know your comeuppance. He's talking about an act. And remember, once an act is done, whether it's a thought in the mind or an act of speech or an act of the body, and an, act, an action, um, it has an effect. It's, it's an energy which goes either in the mind, it goes into the psyche itself or through speech and action out into the world. That's an action, you see. And the proper word for your comeuppance is vipaka, vipaka. But he's very clear how he says that. Now, in dependent origination, you'll see that there are little moments there. As we perceive something, as we perceive something, say a flower, there's a, um, a feeling arises with that perception. Perception and feeling arise together. So not only do I say to myself, flower, I have a feeling of, of pleasantness, contentment, joy when I see a beautiful flower. Now, at that point, that's what happens to the Buddha. There's no distinction there between us and somebody who's liberated. But then something kicks in which says, I want that. <laughs> and the first thing comes want. Want, there's that, there's something else comes into the equation that wants the flower. And then there comes the identity. I want it. So it's, it's in the reverse of our language. I want ice cream is actually, ice cream wants I. That's how it happens psychologically. And at that point of identification, you see, the next moment is very difficult to stop because psychically it's very empowered. And that moment is the grasping of the flower and ripping it off and running away with it. And that action is the becoming. So becoming that action is the same as the empowerment of will is the same as karma, is the same as an action. So these three words really are all pointing to the same thing. Will, how we use the will, how you actually empower something. Right? Now this is really very important to understand because don't confuse an idea which is laced with wanting, that we call a desire or a craving, with an act of karma. It's not, nothing's happened, you see. So if you, for instance, walk into this kitchen and you think, I'll have a cup of tea, that's still at the level of just desire. But as soon as you move, even even a nanometer of a, of a finger towards the <laughs> towards the pot, you, you're empowering that desire. You see, and in empowering that desire, you're you're re, you're reinforcing a conditioning. Hmm? So, the will is the engine or the or the the empowerment of something. The kama refers to the act that has been done. And the bhava refers to the self that continues its self-existence through this action. Every time it does something, it says, oh, it's me, me again, I've done that. So I must exist. See? So those three things meld together in any action, whether we are thinking or whether we're speaking or whether we're, we're doing. And uh, in the world... We're always acting. You can't. I mean, it's only when you sleep that you're not actually acting in some way. And the same can be said of the Buddha. So the Buddha, you know, woke up and he thought, well, it's you know time to do a bit of meditation. He used to, you know, he, he did it for his own benefit. He said, and for the benefits of others. There's a good example. 
and then he thought, well, I'm a bit hungry now, so he get on his, <laughs> get his bowl together and, and go off on Pindapad. Somebody would stop him in, on the way and say, uh, how are you doing, you know, Bhagavan? And he'd say, oh, I'm doing fine, how are you? You know, <laughs> little pleasantries. It wasn't, he wasn't above the ordinary little pleasantries of life. Uh, on his arms round, people might ask him in and, and have a chat with him about that, the Dharma or something. So he's acting perfectly normal in the world, uh, uh, in, in a sense, like, like we do. But somehow, we end up suffering, or we end up unsatisfied, or we end up, <laughs> we end up you know, unfortunate. So there's a special, the, the Abhidhamma tried to create a new word to describe the actions of a Buddha. And they came up with this word with Kriya, which means sort of functional. And what's, what, what they're trying to point to is the fact that although the Buddha was making decisions, although he was acting, there was no perpetuation of this delusion of I, this self, you see, this self. Now, we were talking yesterday about how we can come out of these levels of self, the body self, the emotional self, the thought self, into just this quite distinct feeling of, of a self-awareness, see? And it's the association with that, of course, when it dives into these other parts of our of our. Um, you know, uh, um, I was going to say becoming or existence or something, as it dives into the, the thought life and emotions and whatnot, it manifests through that, this self-manifests as somebody who speaks, somebody who feels, somebody who does. So um, this, this, uh, th that process there is the core of the karma that the Buddha's talking about when he's talking about that which is going to liberate us from suffering or otherwise. And all he says is, if you do something harmful to others or to yourself, harm will come of it. And good, good will come of it. Now, as we say, on the outside of things, it doesn't often turn out that way. You do something good and somebody hates you for it. You do something bad and, and you get away with it. But internally, it's not possible. See, that's the point. Internally, when we do something unwholesome, it creates an unwholesome habit within us, which, you know, creates a turbulence and often finds its way out in speech, in actions, and eventually, of course, it does, you do get some comeback. I mean, if you're an angry sort of person, uh, you know, in the end, you do begin to wonder why nobody's calling round and <laughs> nobody makes a phone call. <laughs> Whereas, you know, if if, if you've got onto the idea that, well, if you're very open and kind and generous, people sort of hang around, you think, oh, that's, that's a good thing, you see. Because it becomes a big ego thing then, but at least it, it tends to be a bit happier than, than, uh, than being a grump. So internally, though, uh, you know, we're creating this internal world. And that's exactly what we come across when we sit in meditation. This is our creation, this is. Nobody's... Nobody's created the inner world for us. This has all been done by our acts of will. Now, of course, there are catalysts. You know, if you happen to, uh, you know, be with people who are coarse and who are vile and all that sort of stuff, it's very difficult to maintain, uh, you know, a purity of mind. But if you're with people who are good, generally speaking, then it's easier. All the surroundings, all the culture that we're in, people we meet, the jobs we do, all that, sure, they have... They're there as catalysts, but it's always an internal process which is actually creating this internal psychology. Mm. And that's, uh, 
you know, at first that might come as a bit of a disappointment because it's always nice to blame somebody else for our problems, you know, and try and get compensation. But it, there's also a liberation there because obviously if my happiness is dependent on you, fundamentally dependent on you, and you're making me unhappy, then I don't have much of a choice. I've just got to get rid of you. And I've got to get rid of anybody whom I don't like. But if I am the one who's creating my own unha unhappiness, and this, of course, means that it's just me I've got to work with. It's just me that I have to find the answer uh, within. And, uh, and, and that comes as a sort of... Um, uh, sort of liberation really because it liberates me from the world out there and, and throws me back into myself and makes me want to inquire as to well what am I doing what decisions am I making what, what thought patterns am I constantly reproducing to create these, this, this unhappiness even, <coughs> even if I'm doing things which are actually making me very happy um, you know, helping people and uh, uh, art and um, going to the cinema and, and all the things that we can do to generate a sense of well-being and goodness within us, um, even that can become painful when the stuff begins to disappear or when we fall ill. See, I have a friend at the moment who likes to walk and he likes, um, likes the country, likes to um, visit places and um, through an accident of sorts he's gone and uh, done something to his, I think it's it's Achilles' heel or something. Anyway, he, can, he, he has to hobble. <laughs> and whenever I am in contact with him, I can see he's very frustrated with it. You know, he's very angry. And, he's, and, and the NHS should do something about this. And, <laughs> and uh, he's, he's finding it very difficult because, you know, it's, it's curtailed his, uh, his happiness, which was dependent on all this, on all this stuff. So uh, when we... Uh, really want to know about the karma, the real karma, which is to do with our liberation from suffering, then it's always inward. It's always looking inward to see exactly what, what it is we're doing that creates the world that we are living in. And that's the real thing we have to grasp. Um, it doesn't deny the reality of the outside world. It doesn't deny the reality of other people and so on and so forth. But what it does say is that the world I'm living in is the world I'm creating. Even at the basic, even at that basic level of the senses, you know. If, I mean, <clears throat> if I'm colorblind, then I see things that people, other people don't see. And I see, the, I see the universe differently, right, just even at that level. And when we recognize that, then... <clears throat> You know, we, we, we actually take on that responsibility, the full responsibility of, of trying to do something uh, about our situation. And that's why we're all here. We wouldn't be here if we hadn't taken on that responsibility. Now, uh, one thing that might be said is, oh, well, this is very selfish. It's very self, uh, you know, self-centered. It's not, you know, what about love and, and other people and all that sort of stuff? <laughs> well, of course... Um, what we begin to realize is that there is this interconnectedness. Before, when we were reacting to people, we were, we were reacting from some uh, self-centeredness, some, some ego-centered, I don't particularly like using the word ego, but there we are, uh, some selfishness, right? So only self-regard. So that everything has to fit in with what I want, how, how the world fits in with me. 
as we begin to undermine that of course um, the magic is that suddenly you begin to experience other people and the world and nature differently because this kink in the way we're looking at things has been taken away slowly being drained out of the system I had a lovely incident once in a, in a car with my parents uh, my mother was Italian and uh, um, she, uh, she could get uh, a little bit depressed at times and we were driving along and uh, we hit this beautiful scenery and uh, I can't remember whether it was my brother in the car but, but somebody said oh look at that mum isn't it beautiful and she said oh what I can't see anything <laughs> see? and my father said oh cheer up Rosa and she said you shut up <laughs> it was a brilliant it was a brilliant little party and here you've got <laughs> where you completely misheard something because of her own grumpiness you see she did cheer up by the way so you get this every time remember you, you're in a mood every time a mood comes up it, it puts a colouring on the world you see it puts a colouring on the world around you and you can't, you can't stop that. Now that's the second thing that we come about, this psychology about the real karma, which is to do with our liberation. Past conditioning, you can't just get rid of. You can't just say, well, you know, I'm not going to be angry anymore, full stop. And it just doesn't work. What we realise is that this conditioning is not me. This is the funny thing. It's not me, it's not mine. I've created it through these acts of will but it's not me, it's not mine. It has its own engine, it has its own power, it has its own obstinacy. And so what we find ourselves having to do is to sit patiently, to endure all the conditionings that we've created through these delusive, delusive thinking, delusive actions, delusive speech. And that's really the hard bit of the practice. I mean, that in a sense is why the Buddha, I think, calls, it, calls them hindrances, because... Uh, you know, were it not for those, we would very quickly attain uh, liberation. We'd, we'd attain enlightenment. What's what's actually dragging us down, uh, you know, making it very difficult for us, is our past conditions. See? So, this demands this patient endurance that the Buddha often talks about, you know. The highest form of ascetic practice is patience. And when we sit and, and we are allowing the, the karma, this, in, in, the vipaka, this is the product of past actions, the product of past decisions, the product of past karma, hmm? we're allowing it to manifest in its fullness and beginning to die out. And then we are changing that energy into its opposite through the practice of goodwill. And even if we, if we, even if we don't do the practice of goodwill as a specific practice, the fact that energy which has manifested as anger or grudges and, or depression, all that stuff, it naturally manifests outwardly, begins to manifest rather in a positive way. Because remember, what's changing in this process is our view of things. And, the, and our view of things changes our relationship to things. And therefore just by sitting with this um, with whatever uh, um, negative states come up within us you see that even that is part of the process of changing our understanding of the world and uh, finally you could say the um, we come to that deep 
sort of delusion which is creating all this obvious karma which is the, the initial mistake right? that's also uh, our fundamental shall we say uh, karma in, 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 in terms of liberation this fundamental mistake of seeking happiness in the sensual world and by sensual world, we mean the whole caboodle, we mean the whole cosmos, we mean other people, we mean, we mean everything that can be uh, felt, sensed. That's the sensual world. And by seeking real happiness there, confusing pleasure, com- confusing the joys of life. See, the Buddha's not saying he doesn't enjoy life. He enjoys life, he enjoys the things that life brings. But confusing that with real happiness is where the problem lies. And... That's why I say, when your meditation is very calm and you know, you've got a, just a general peaceful state and you are in that place of the observer, you just ask yourself, what is the state of the observer? And uh, just to finish off, uh, when, when uh, Sariputta, you see, is asked, you talk about the bliss of Nibbana, you talk about the joy of Nibbana, but there's no emotions in Nibbana. He says, well, it's the very absence of emotions which is the bliss and nibbana. You get your head around that one. <laughs> so, um, the law of karma, really, in terms of the spiritual laws, which is the fifth law. So we had the physical laws, the biological laws, the psychic laws, psychological laws, the law of karma, which is the law of, of morality, really, the, the ethics, you know, it's, the, it's ethics. And finally, we have this law of, of uh, the spiritual laws in which we can uh, include our vipassana, uh, the Four Noble Truths, and so forth. And so, uh, karma holds this, this specific place of action. Uh, every time we do something, we have to remind ourselves that it's going to have some effect. So, you have to be very careful and uh, not to get neurotic about it. And remember that an act of attention is an act of intention uh, that's really really important to grasp. as soon as you attend to something there's an act of intention there so every time you you're sitting on a bus and you're passing these billboards and you look at them you know and you attend to them it's affecting us it's a passive it's a passive state we're not we're not doing it on purpose but it's going in because to put your attention somewhere somewhere demands an act of intention so, uh, our aim is to keep pointing our attention at what is wholesome, what is, what is good for us. And eventually, you know, one, one can, uh, I'm sure you've all felt a turning, a movement within, within yourself. I can only hope my words have been of some assistance. May you be liberated from all your karma and achieve full liberation sooner rather than later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.